One of the most memorable psalms we encounter in our daily prayers is Psalm 46, from which we get the uh, very well-known and comforting line, Be still and know that I am God. We often lift this verse a little bit out of context when we go into our closets to pray or when we're practicing deep meditation I love the way of of praying this verse where it goes like this. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. However, in its literal sense, God's tone in this moment as God speaks through the psalmist is a little bit more, oh, it's a good SAT word dyspeptic. Be still and know that I am God. It's more like a a cry, a a military order, a a ceasefire, a drop your weapons, pay attention to me, leave the tactical war efforts, leave vengeance to me. Be still, all you warring peoples, and know that I am God. There's even a hint of sarcasm. Sarcasm. Come, behold the works of the Lord, the psalmist says. See what desolations he's brought upon the earth. Oh no, he makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the shields with fire. With tongue in cheek, it's like God is saying to Israel, well, don't just do something. Stand there. Considering this command to be still and let God do the fighting, I find it a bit strange when the great prophet Moses does exactly this. Only for God to rebuke him. For from the very beginning, God tells a a hesitant Moses, remember Moses standing beside the burning bush, throwing up every excuse like spaghetti strands on the wall, hoping something's going to stick so he doesn't have to go to Pharaoh and pursue this ridiculous mission. God says to a hesitant Moses, don't don't worry about your fears and your weaknesses and your stutter. I'll take care of this. You have only to to follow orders and, and I'll do all the real work. Time and again, Moses learns that God is a God who's going to do just that. To this point, Moses has obeyed and God has delivered even against powerful Pharaoh. So I find it a little bit irksome and bothersome and sort of confusing that God seems to have finally trained Moses to be able to stand in the middle of this conflict, of this facing certain death, and Moses has the fortitude and the courage to stand there and say, everyone just hold back, don't worry, have Courage, don't be afraid, God is going to fight for us. Only for God to respond. On on second thought, don't just stand there, do something. I'd love to just imagine that moment, this critical, pregnant, terrifying moment. And Moses finally has figured out how to have this kind of courage. And he stands there and, and he's waiting for God to act. And 
he's looking at his watch and, and he finally looks up at God and God looks at Moses and says, what are you waiting for? Get going. Tell the Israelites to go forward. And then unfolds one of the most dramatic and divine events in all of human history. Lift up your staff, God says to Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the waters and send the people through onto the dry ground. The angel of the Lord goes before them and a, a fiery pillar of cloud hems in behind them to protect them and it lights up the night so that they can see during the day and the night. And then Moses, well, Moses doesn't just stand there. He does something. He stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord delivers a strong east wind. All through the night, the wind blows so strong that it separates the waters and creates a wide path of dry land, while walls of water, like waves paused in real time, real time stand sustained and flank them on each side. The Egyptians see the opportunity to strike. They move in after them. Only their chariot wheels begin to get clogged when the waters begin to seep back in and create a muddy ground where it had been dry. And there's axles breaking and soldiers being flung out of their seats. And there's mud and sweat and blood and chaos. And then on command, Moses lifts his hand with the rising sun and the invisible force holding up those walls of water retreats, it recedes, and the void in the sea rapidly fills in with a torrent of sea foam and flotsam and jetsam. And the Israelites see the bodies of their pursuers in the morning light floating in the surf and strewn across the beaches. This event is so enduring and powerful and dramatic that it can fool us into thinking that it had to happen this way. Well, it's in the Bible. It had to happen this way. But remember, it didn't have to happen this way. The Egyptians could have listened to the prophets speak over time. They could have listened to Moses. They could have listened to Aaron. They could have listened to God's voice flowing through them and teaching them and warning them and guiding them. They could have recognized that the God of the Israelites was speaking to them in that first plague. Remember the first plague when the Nile was turned into blood. And the fish died and the Egyptians had nothing to drink, no fresh water. They could have recognized that the God of Israelites was speaking to them after the second plague. Remember the second plague where the, uh, the, the same river teems with frogs. You know you've got a problem when it's not just frogs, but you've got some teeming. Anything teeming, there's a problem. The Nile will teem with frogs, says the scripture. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed. Good Lord. Into the houses of your officials and on your people and even into your ovens and kneading dough frogs teeming everywhere into your kitchen you open the fridge there's frogs you you unfold your bed there's frogs 
The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. You would think after that second plague, the Egyptians would have started to get the message that there was a divine power trying to communicate them. But alas, you know, if if that happened today, I'll tell you what, I don't think I'd even be surprised. If my kids came running into the house this afternoon and said, Daddy, Daddy, you've got to see this. The French broad has turned to blood and there's lots of frogs coming out, like millions and billions and even thousands of frogs and they're headed this way. I think at this point in 2020, I would probably just shrug and say, Oh boy, Uh, that's strangely enough to be expected this year. Don't know why I would be surprised. 2020 landed on pretty thick now. But it goes on like this for what seems like forever. A third plague, lice. A fourth, flies. A fifth, pestilence across the livestock. Ten plagues in all. And after each one, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever wondered about that phrase? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is a very complicated uh, idea in the scriptures that God would reach down God's hand and, and grasp Pharaoh's heart, wrap God's fingers around Pharaoh's heart and turn it into stone, harder, denser. So was it meant to be then? Did it have to happen this way after all? After all, the scripture says, the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart, meant to be. No, no. You have to consider that this means is is Pharaoh is stiffening his neck in response to what God is doing. The Lord's actions in history are frustrating and angering Pharaoh and scaring Pharaoh, and and Pharaoh is stubbornly refusing to see that God's acts in history are the consequences of his own oppressive policies, his greed, his negligence, his cruelty. But you know, it's not just Pharaoh. We can can also see how hearts can be hardened in the midst of our own plagues. It was recently disclosed that, that many of our American neighbors see the pandemic death toll as acceptable. Nearly 200,000 deaths. I heard someone say, well, these folks were about to die of something anyway. That's it. That's how it happens. The hardening of the heart, the insensitivity to mass suffering and death, it can creep up on us, especially after all the plagues that we could say our nation has been through. Across decades, across centuries. Eventually, we, we find that our hearts have been hardened, even to greater miseries. I remember my professor, Emmanuel Katangale, telling us about the journalist Philip Gurevich, who randomly met an American military intelligence officer in a bar in Kigali. He, he had learned that, uh, I guess he just overheard somehow that the journalist Gurevich was interviewing people about the genocide. Then the officer turns to him in the bar and says, you know what genocide is? And Gurevich said, 
why don't you tell me? And the intelligence officer said, a genocide is cheese sandwich. Genocide, 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 cheese sandwich, cheese sandwich, cheese sandwich. What does the genocide matter to you? Is the genocide affecting you? Has a crime against humanity been perpetrated on you? Whose humanity? Yours? Mine? Just a million Rwandans. Cheese sandwich. Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. But God says, don't just stand there, go forward. Now you may be wondering at this very moment, dearly beloved, dearly, dearly beloved, beloved Pastor Mac, how in the name of Mary do you expect us to go forward now? I'm just trying to get through the day. Some days, I don't even want to get out of bed. I know. What we're living through is as difficult and challenging a time as most of us have ever known. But I stand before you now. And I want to tell you from the depths of my own heart that God, when God asked Moses to tell the Israelites to move forward, God is not telling them to move forward when they have a plain view of an open road and a wide horizon. When God relays this message to Moses, the entire nation is stuck. A simple bird's eye view would tell us that they are hemmed in from before and behind and facing certain doom. God tells them to move forward precisely when the Egyptians have them surrounded. Only a fool would think that moving forward in this very moment was an option. The clear-eyed realists among them say, why'd you bring us here, Moses? Not enough graves in Egypt? <sighs> Move forward, how? In a land of hardened hearts and stiff necks, the very first thing we can do is weep, lament. And by weep, I mean, to give ourselves permission to feel this pain, to recognize what's been lost and what's being lost and what may yet be lost, to feel it, to feel this, to let the tears roll without fear, to let our cheeks remain wet with broken dreams and promises and darkened hopes. If we can do that, it means that our hearts have not been hardened all the way. It means we're still capable of transformation. We can't move forward if we can't be moved by what's happening. Weep with those who weep. Blessed are those who weep, for they will laugh. But first, there's weeping. And that's the first step forward. Move forward how? 
In a time of hardened hearts and, and clenched fists, we can share. Share our pain, yes, but also our convictions and our courage. Pharaoh and his army must have been baffled by the Israelites' courage even in this moment. And they're obeying Moses' call to go forward. They must have been standing, some of them at least, must have looked across the gap between them and seen them beginning to move, and their mouths fell open a little bit in, in disbelief that this ragtag bunch of slaves could have this much courage to trust a leader who's done nothing more than raise his hand and witness the wind blow. Just enough courage, just enough faith for God to work with. Pharaoh can take away many things, but cannot take away our courage. Move forward? How? In a time of hardened hearts and status quo preservationists, we can dream. We can dream with the God whose dreams will not be frustrated by wickedness. I want you to pause and simply reflect some time on the ways that God's dream had begun to burgeon in our midst in this gentle congregation, in the midst of a gathering of our tender hearts, I see God doing new and beautiful things among us. I see your weeping and I count it as evidence of faith. I see your courage and I reckon it as a sign of real hope. I dream along with you and live into the wonder of God's mighty acts and also of the often and subtle and even invisible traces of God's presence among us. We weep. We share our courage. We dream. And we hear the good news, sisters and brothers. That the same east wind that blew over the waters of the sea and divided them and created a path of dry ground is the same east wind that in the beginning blew across the face of the waters and brought an end to the chaos and gave order to the cosmos. It's the same wind, breath, spirit that breathes and sustains us and blows on us now as we are enclosed in this dark womb waiting to be born anew. Hold on to this hope. Cling to the conviction in this good news that one day and that right soon the waters will break and something new will be born right here amongst us, new creation. Amen.